Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. The world's being turned upside down, so, so there's a lot to say, and, and I want to just address a whole variety of different things from the situation going on in Israel to just what's going on in the Parsha and just our own spirituality, our own lives, and, and obviously everything is incredibly interconnected. Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, just to give you a, a sense of how interconnected everything is, says something actually astonishing, which is that all wars going on in the world are reflected in our individual family dynamics. Can you imagine that, that, that the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, that the thing going on between Israel and Hamas are all sort of like reflections of what's going on in terms of just us and our brothers and our sisters, our parents, our children, our cousins, you know, our friends. That's, that's but it, it, it tells you just how absolutely interconnected everything is and how everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds, which is the more deeply you study Torah, you realize that everything matters, everything counts. And so, so what that means is, is that all of us right now, as, as perhaps, okay, I'll use this word, as hyperbolic, which means as over the top as what I'm about to say may sound, I, I mean this very sincerely, very, very much from my heart, that all of us are on a battlefield right now. Now, I, I don't mean to suggest that those of us who are outside of Israel are in the same level of imminent threat that someone who's in Gaza is in and, or on the border of Lebanon. That would be absurd, and, and of course I don't mean that. But, but God, is in, 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 in his infinite wisdom, has spread us all around the globe. And what I mean to say is, is that us in our own personal lives can be part of this situation and are part of this situation, whether we acknowledge it or not. And the way that we contribute to victory, the way that we become spiritual warriors in, in a way that's meaningful and meaningfully a shape, shapes What's going on in Israel right now is how we are addressing the conflicts that are interpersonal in our life right now. The more that we can bring harmony to our relationships right now, the more that's going to reflect and bring harmony to the world. Because again, everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. And so since the bulk of us, at least on this talk, are, are not in uniform right now. We need to understand how, how primary our role in the conflict is. And just because whatever from circumstances we can't even understand, we've been dealt into different parts of the world, that doesn't remove us at all from primary responsibility and taking our lives and our positions with the utmost seriousness. Now, I'll just tell you something, which is going to come with a very weird little twist to it, but that's kind of not the point of this story, but there is a weird twist coming up, so just to alert you. So, I was here at the, the Happy Minion Simchas Torah night. Everybody knows that's, that's when we finish the Torah and then we, we start the Torah again. That's during the day, but, but the, they're celebrating at night as well. And that's when the initial reports of of the atrocities started coming in and everyone had the same question, which is how can we be dancing? How can we be celebrating? And so I did my best to, to, to address the issue. And, and here's what I said. And, and what, what I'm about to tell you was not just for the dancing of Simcha's Torah, but it's how it, it, it applies equally in terms of our here and now, okay? Day, days later. So I said that, you know, imagine, imagine you've got two people and they're, they, each of them sees this homeless person on the street and each of them gives a dollar to this homeless person. 
But for one of the two people, it's his last dollar that he's given. So on the outside, it can look like, well, the same thing just took place. But on the inside, the reality is worlds apart, right? Giving your last dollar to the homeless person, that, that's something else dramatically different that just happened. So you can look at the dancing going on and, or our daily lives being led, and you can say that there's something frivolous or perhaps you know, spiritually insensitive that, that celebrating can, can happen at a time like this. Or you can say, well, what's going on on the inside of the person? And what I was saying is that there's, there's, there's spiritual warfare, so to speak, that can be waged while dancing. That the clapping of the hands can be artillery fire falling on the other person's position. That the singing can be missiles coming out of your mouth going to the other place. That you can close your eyes. And then I really paused and used this next phrase with great hesitancy because I don't know anything about these things and, and it's not really my style to speak in these terms, but, but I use this phrase anyway, which is astral projection. Meaning to say that while you're dancing, while you're just going about your, your lives, you can be sitting next to someone in a tank and offering them comfort. You can be sitting next to a, a hostage right now who might have a hood over his head or her head and giving them comfort. You can be with a mother who just did her best to have a smile on her face playing with a small child and is now in the hallway of her house leaning her head against the wall and crying her eyes out so that the child doesn't see. You can be with your arm around that person. You, you can do that. You can, you, can, you can use your imagination and per, perhaps, perhaps just project your spirit in a real way. Again, I don't know anything about these things. But why not, right? Astral projection. So here's the part I was referring to a few moments ago. About 24 hours after I said that, maybe less, I was sitting in front of my computer and I had a thought that I don't know where or how it came to me. But I thought to myself, you know that music festival where all those people were shot and killed and taken hostage? I want to see the poster. I just want to look at the poster that advertised it. Where that thought came from, I don't even know. I had to do some Googling in order to find it. I found it, and one of the bands that was playing it was the name of that band was Astral Projection. Whoa. And and I have the poster if you if you want to see it. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. But perhaps, perhaps what it means is that we can do this. And that it's one more productive way of just opening up our souls and being with those who are oppressed right now. Now, I want to just deal with that issue of the oppressed people, because who is oppressed? Who is oppressed right now? Well, there are a lot of people who are oppressed right now. Certainly, those people who are literally sick, literally sick with grief, are oppressed. And do I discount the fact that there are Palestinians who might be good people who are feeling oppressed right now? There are probably many, many of them. So what is ethical at this time? So I want to address that. And I'm speaking as a Jew to fellow Jews, but I'm also speaking to whoever else wants to hear this message. Over the last couple of generations, last few generations, we've grown up with a certain moral orthodoxy. And I'm talking about just all people. And here, here is what we've been taught by 
everything, by speakers, by television shows, by movies, by, by, by culture in general, by music bands, by everything. Peace good, war bad. Peace good, war bad. But, but let's just take a moment to, to consider that, okay? There is a mitzvah in the Torah, which is called milchemes mitzvah, which means a divinely ordained war. Not only that, but Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon, the, the wisest of men, says there's a time for peace and a time for war. Meaning to say that war in itself is not inherently immoral. The opposite. The opposite. Not going to war can be inherently immoral. And let me give you a very clear example. If Hitler rose and continued to be unopposed, that blatant evil in the world, and we said in the face of Hitler's atrocities, if we said, peace good, war bad, peace good, war bad, that would be evil on our part. We would be guilty of evil in the face of evil because we didn't confront evil. In other words, one of the ways to comport yourself in a moral, righteous, kind way is to uproot evil when evil manifests itself blatantly as evil. And to do otherwise might be masquerading itself as kindness or compassion, but it is absolutely unethical and immoral. And the Torah itself is very clear on that point. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm making a point of this because there are people who are highly conflicted and they wrestle with the idea of, you know, what, what happens when you, when, you, when you show strength in the face of evil? And what happens when collateral damage occurs, when, when, when innocents suffer along with the people that you're targeting? Does that, does that mean that you, you, you can't do what you need to do? And, you know, I don't know who said it first, but war is hell. And that's why people say things like war is hell. Because in order to address the primary evil, there is residual suffering. And that's why it's such a miserable task, but it's not an immoral task. And we have to have confidence that there's a moral stance to war when it's to uproot a blatant evil like we've seen right now. And you can be confident and you can be proud of a strong stance that's coming to uproot it. Let's just talk a little bit of history right now. Just to compound the point, take it a step further. The Geneva Convention, which, which again, a lot of us grew up with, 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 the, with the codes of the Geneva Convention. Let's just talk about a little bit of the history of it. It, it actually started in the 1860s, but the full-blown Geneva Convention really reached its, its, its culmination, its peak in, in terms of the way we know it, after World War II. And the idea was actually great. The, the idea was, wait a second, war is just savagery. What if the nations of the world agreed that there should be some rules to how we wage war, how we treat civilians, how we treat women and children, how we treat hostages and captives, POWs? What if all of the nations of the world could agree that there's a certain moral stance in how to address these situations? Wouldn't that be a march forward for civilization? And everyone said, absolutely. What a great idea. But now here's where it gets a little bit complicated. 
That's great when it comes to restricting evil people preying on innocence. But what happens when the evil people themselves hide behind this moral code so that evil can continue to perpetuate itself and that they themselves hide behind a morality that they themselves don't practice? What happens then? And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing people cry out that what Israel doing, is doing is, is too far or, or, or it's not fair. But that is literally evil hiding behind these statutes so that it can perpetuate itself and rear its head again. You also have to have something, and now I just want to educate you about something that I think is just, just everyone should know this word backwards and forwards, and this is at the root of why college campuses all over just are running to support the Palestinians. Did you ever wonder, how did it happen exactly that every college campus is automatically pro-Palestinian. How did that happen? When did that happen? And so there's a key word that you need to know, and again, this is just for your education, because if you're going to talk with anyone on any college campus, if you're not versed in this, then you're just gonna be wiped, you're gonna be wiped away in terms of argumentation. It's called intersectionality. How did intersectionality begin? What's the history of it? It began with feminists, and it went like this. There were women in, say, the United States who very rightly, correctly, and justly said, hey, wait a second, why don't we have equal rights? Why don't we have equal treatment? Why is a man being paid so much more for this job than a woman is being paid for this job? That doesn't make any sense, and that's completely unjust. Okay, all good, all 100% good. Why are women, why is there a glass ceiling in terms of how far women can be promoted within an organization or a company? Why can't women be CEOs? Okay, all of this, 100% good. And then there was an outcry from other women in the world that said, oh, wow, you call yourselves feminists? You are a collection of rich white women advocating for your own interests. That's not feminism. Feminism is supporting women all over the world in their oppression. That's feminism, not what you're doing. And it's like, whoa, that was a very powerful point. Like, okay, let's take a step back and absorb that. I hear truth there. I hear truth there. If I want to be a feminist, I have to connect myself. And now this is the beginning of the roots of intersectionality. I have to begin to address whenever I protest to have in mind all of these people in my category. Now intersectionality grows. And it says, wait a second. So, so women are just going to advocate for other women? How about all of us? advocate for each other, that whoever is oppressed advocates simultaneously for everyone who is oppressed. If there is an LGBT plus protest, it has to include everybody else who is oppressed in the world. And now enter the Palestinians stage left. All of a sudden, they, oh, hello. Hello, hello. All of a sudden they were invited, slashed, invited themselves into the community of the worldwide oppressed so that fruit pickers in Northern California can't protest the fact that they're being oppressed by the landowners without advocating for Palestinian rights. 
And then I, I don't have the, you know something? Give me, give me one second, because I, I absolutely want to try to read this to you, because it is, it is proof of what I'm saying. It's absolutely proof of what I'm saying, and you can hear it verbatim. Okay, this is now intersectionality in action. You ready? I don't know if you followed this story, but the, the editor of Harper's Bazaar, which you may or may not be familiar with, it's a very high-end women's fashion magazine by Condé Nast, which is, you know, like the, that's the most high-end publisher of, of, of magazines for a long time already. So the editor there got into trouble by, by saying something just ridiculous. I'm not gonna go into all the details about the, the, the situation between Israel and Hamas. And she very reluctantly kind of sort of retracted it. But then they were saying, well, you know, she's got a whole history of this. And here was an Instagram tweet of hers from two years ago, okay? And this is intersectionality. She's not gonna use this word, but in action. You ready? Nasser posted, that's her last name, Nasser posted on Instagram, quote, one cannot advocate for racial equality, LGBT and women's rights, condemn corrupt and abusive regimes and other injustices, yet choose to ignore the Palestinian oppression. It does not add up. You cannot pick and choose whose human rights matter more. There it is, folks. There it is, folks. You cannot oppose an oppressive regime in the world without also simultaneously advocating for the Palestinians. Otherwise, you are immoral. So if you wonder how is it that this situation is going on at, at, at Harvard, which I don't know if you've read about, but this is, you know, as a, as a, as a Harvard graduate, this is something that, that I followed, and, and it's just an, an amazing thing that's going on right now. So let me just, just in case you missed this story, let me spell it out for you. As soon as these atrocities were committed, over 30 undergraduate organizations at Harvard signed a letter that said, Israel is 100% responsible for what just happened. 100% responsible for what just happened. Someone named Bill Ackman, who runs a very large hedge fund, read someone who gives big fat jobs to Harvard graduates, <laughs> said, you know what? I've been talking with some other CEOs and we would like the names of the people in the organizations that sign that so that we don't accidentally hire them. Accountability? Accountability, anyone? Hiding behind signatures on petitions where my name doesn't appear? It gets more interesting. The next day, and I kid you not, you can look it up. This was in the New York Post. I saw photographs of it. The next day, a truck was riding around the Harvard campus with a video screen on both sides with the faces of all of the students of the organizations that signed it with a sign over the video screen, Harvard's leading anti-Semites. Wow. There are other examples of this. The Student Bar Association at NYU, the, the president wrote a letter, and what was hilarious about this was the letter was on stationery that was colorful, happy stationery with like pumpkins on the top, right? You know, like that, like fun, happy stationery. And the letter that she wrote, which was, you know, the letter from the president, this week's letter from the president, you know, if it had been written by the PR firm who runs Hamas's communications, it could not be more filled with hate. 
the top New York law firm rescinded her job offer the next day. After that, all the people who are members of the Student Bar Association at NYU Law School, one of the top law schools in America, were like, whoa, whoa, she doesn't speak for us. She did not ask our permission to run that thing. And now we are initiating impeachment charges to get her out of being the fact that she's the president of our Student Bar Association. So what I'm wondering, has intersectionality hit a wall? This automatic sense that everyone in any oppressed group, whatever that is, whether you're a fruit picker or in a black district in the south of the United States that's having your congressman taken away because of gerrymandering or LGBT or whatever group that you're in, the idea that do you really automatically accept whatever Hamas is doing and you sign your name to that? Really? Maybe at some point there was a certain logic to it, but today and now under these circumstances, this has to be addressed because this automatic lockstep, whatever they do, I do, and whatever I do, they do, it's no longer morally tenable. Reach out because there's someone better than me who can do a think piece on this for the New York Times that can design memes, that can get this idea across in a simple, clear way. If you are gay, Hamas will kill you. They will murder you. As an LGBT person, you embrace Hamas over Israel who welcomes you and allows you to live the life that you want to live? Are you embracing Hamas? because you're so heroic that you will give your life over their land dispute with Israel? Because speaking as a Jew, it just manifests itself as hate and anti-Semitism, not as compassion for their cause. And I don't think that's where you're coming from. I can't imagine that's where you're coming from. Because whatever oppression you're experiencing in whatever form of your life, I can't imagine that you are aligning your soul with slitting babies' throats and cutting open their stomachs and setting them on fire. I can't believe that that's your stance. I refuse to believe that that's your stance. That you feel so strongly. It's impossible. So if it's impossible, that means that there's some disconnect. And I think that disconnect is coming from lack of information, not lack of compassion. Intersectionality and this automatic signing on the dotted line of whatever they do, and you've seen what they're doing now, has to end, must end, must, must. Because you are joining an immoral army, and I don't think you want to. I don't, I don't. I don't think it represents you. Okay, I wanna, I wanna transition, I wanna talk about some spiritual ideas right now. That's all spiritual, by the way, but it's, it's, it's gonna be getting into the Parsha a little bit. And it is addressing this situation, but we're just gonna kinda go into the text and just kinda take a few steps back and just widen the lens like quite a bit, okay? So everybody knows that we just finished reading Parsha's Breshis. That's the, the, the beginning of the beginning. That's the creation of the universe. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny. Everything, everything in the world is levels. And I, as I told you, everything is worlds within worlds. And everything goes by stages. And so beginnings also go by stages, which is interesting. It says in the Talmud, something very, like you can think about this for a long, long time. It says in the plural, listen for the plural, all beginnings are difficult. 
that interesting? Well, why doesn't it say to begin is difficult? Because that's certainly true. That's all you had to say. To begin something is difficult. You know, a lot of times, like I know, like in, you know, all, all of us fellow procrastinators, right? Like, you just never start. You push it off, you push it off. You know that to begin something is difficult. So just say that. Why all beginnings are difficult? And so one explanation that I heard, and I'm going to suggest something else in a moment. One explanation I heard is because a lot of times when you begin, it doesn't work. And so you have to really be committed to trying again after it doesn't stick the first time. And then sometimes trying again the third time. You know, I often have said that if you don't call someone twice, you haven't called them once. You know? And it goes with texting also. So many people, it's so hard for them to make that phone call or to send that text. And if they don't hear back, they're destroyed. And they shrink into a corner and they fold into a fetal position. And it's sort of like, please let the humiliation just end. But the truth is, is that half those times, three quarters of the time, the person never saw your text to begin with. Or if they did, they meant to send you something and then something came up and then they didn't. And I've given this piece of advice before and I've taken it myself and I'm telling you, it almost always works, okay? Now you can't do this for everyone because some things are more sensitive to other, than others. But there are occasions where this is appropriate. And someone did this to me and it worked so effectively that I was like, wow, this, that was amazing. I'm going to tell people to do this because this is so good. You write in the email, if it's an email, you write in the email subject, and you can put it in all caps, but you don't have to. You write resending, that word, resending, colon, and then whatever your initial subject was. And believe me, when people see resending, they're like, oh, and they, and they write right back. So, so anyway, all, all beginnings are difficult. But, but let me just give you kind of why I, I'm bringing it up, a, a slightly different point which is we say, you know something? When Rosh Hashanah comes, it's not like you're turning the page on a calendar sort of like from one year to another year. Okay, it was this number year, now it's this number year. It's all very nice. It's just another year within the same universe. That's not the Jewish view. The Jewish view is after the last day of the year, there is no new universe. There's a, there is nothing after that last day on the calendar. Okay? And then when Rosh Hashanah comes in, literally a new universe starts to get formed. Okay, so you go, okay, so the new universe gets formed in Rosh Hashanah. Eh, not so fast. Then we have Yom Kippur. As we say, it's written on Rosh Hashanah. The book is sealed on Yom Kippur. So you go, okay, so on Yom Kippur, we've got the new universe. Eh, not so fast. Then we have Hoshana Rabbah. We say it's written on Rosh Hashanah. It's sealed on Yom Kippur, and then the verdict is delivered on Hoshana Rabbah, which, by the way, is the last day of Sukkot. okay? So we go, okay, great. But then we have Parshas Breshis, where we actually open up the Torah, and we start reading, out of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. So really, until you get to it saying it in the Torah itself, you've got levels of beginnings because everything in life is levels. I'll just tell you as an aside, one time I asked Rip Shlomo Karlbach, how many albums do you have? And he said back to me, on an album level or on a tape level, you know? And it just was so clear to me that everything, every aspect of our lives is levels. It's just levels and levels and levels and levels, okay? And also in terms of keeping a mitzvah, don't ever say, I'm not this or I'm not that. Because whatever it is, if you're in it, you're in it already. And it's just a question of levels, you know? Okay, good. So, so this idea that we just started Breshis. So what happens in Breshis besides the fact that God creates the universe, right? And we really see it coming down into, into actual ink at this point. Well, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge, don't they? 
that that's sort of like, you know, if you had to pick a, a headline, <laughs> you had to pick a headline event, you know, other than the fact that the world was created, that would sort of be the headline event. Now I want to read you the actual verse where it happens, okay? Because it's not just like it kind of happens. It does happen, and here's the verse. Now this is chapter 3, verse 6, if you want to look it up. And the woman, that's Chava, by the way, Eve. She doesn't, she doesn't have a name yet, so that, that's, that's her name here. And the woman perceived that the tree was good for eating and that it was a delight to the eyes. We're going to go into that a little bit further. Delight to the eyes. There's actually a much stronger word that's, that the Torah uses, which is taiva, which is this overwhelming desire that we have trouble controlling in our own lives. So it was a delight to the eyes, a, a taiva to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable as a means to wisdom. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay, so that's it. That's, that's ground zero, so to speak. That's, that, is, that is where all exile basically begins. Okay, so I was looking at that verse because it's kind of an important verse. And this word haisha, meaning Eve, right? is the second word in that verse. Now, wouldn't you like to know what the first word in that verse is? Like, I think that would be kind of interesting. So I was thinking, wow, what's the first word in that verse? Because this is basically where all of history turns dramatically. What's the first word of that verse? And it's the word vetere, okay, which means and she saw. So the verb, just because of Hebrew grammar, the verb goes first. She saw Eve, the fruit. Okay. So again, this is the first word in the verse where all of history, all of human history, all of reality changes. Right? Because we go from, at this moment, creatures of light until unto flesh and blood. Okay, that's another topic, but just trust me on that. So this word, vitera, I was kind of like just looking at it. And I realized that there's another woman's name in that word. Ruth. Rus. And then the letter Aleph. Do you know who Rus is? Rus is the mother of Mashiach. She is David HaMelech's, King David's great-grandmother. And she herself represents another turning point in the history of the world. Isn't it interesting, before Chava's name, where everything goes south, so to speak, you have another woman's name, who's the mother of Mashiach. Isn't that fascinating? And then you have this letter Aleph. So Aleph usually stands for God. You can say, wow, like, like God had in mind Rus at this moment, because we've got a spiritual rule in Judaism. The Rafua comes before the Makkah. Rafua lifnei ha-Makkah which means that God sends the cure, the antidote, before the sickness. So here, Mashiach, the mother of Mashiach, is being referenced before things go south. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If you want to think about that letter Aleph in a different way, but consistent, it's Ruth and one more. And that's the Messianic line, right? That's King David, that's Mashiach, that's the soul of Mashiach. That's the Aleph there. So, God's got our back. God 100% has our back. 
And God understands our humanity. And with that in mind, I want to go deeper. Because there's an event that then happens shortly thereafter, which is after we eat from the tree, we hear something. We hear, we hear the, like a rustling, like, like footsteps or something, like the approach of, we hear the approach of God. And do you know what our reaction is? We hide behind bushes. That's what the Torah says. We hid from God. And God says something amazing. He says, where are you? Now, of course, God knows where we are, right? Because God knows everything. But we're like wondering, does God know where we are? Because he's asking, where are you? Does God not see where we are? Have we exiled God from this world so that God can no longer see us? And this is the question that so many of us are asking ourselves and each other with the situation going on in the world today. Have we, through our disunity and the hatred that we've shown for each other, have we exiled God from this world? Let me tell you something. Do you know the Titanic, when it was being built and when it was being sold and advertised, it, it had a name. It had a name. Look up. Look, look it up. It was called the unsinkable ship. That's what it was called, the unsinkable ship. And guess what? Its very first voyage, it sank. Now, I grew up in New York City. I know what the Twin Towers looked like growing up. You look at those two things. They're never coming down. They are never, ever, ever coming down. Well, you know how that story ends. And now you've got this wall between Israel and Gaza. We're talking about the top Israeli slash top Jewish minds in the world building the greatest, most protective, technologically advanced wall in the world. You look at it at the wrong way. You look at it the wrong way and it like zaps you, right? It's equipped with drones. It's, it's electrified. It goes so far underground, you cannot tunnel beneath it. It's got every sophisticated technological protection that you can ever dream of having. And it fell down. It fell down. How did it fall down? And the answer is because God removed protection from us. God removed our shmira. Now, why did God do that? And the answer is, I don't know, because that's the only honest answer. How do I know? I'm not a prophet. I don't know. But I can, I can suggest something. And it almost doesn't matter whether, whether uh, what I'm saying is correct or not, because the conclusion is correct. When we distance ourselves from each other, when we disunify, God removes his divine protection. We've seen it throughout history. The greatest example that I can give you, the most uncontroversial answer that I can give you, example, is the fact that when the second Beis HaMikdash, the second holy temple in Jerusalem, was destroyed, the rabbis of the time, and now we're talking about the sages of the Gomorrah, said the reason why that happened was because of Sinas Chinam, because we were hating each other for no reason. So, Rabbi Chaim of Velozhin, the top student of the Vilna Gon, so one of the greatest rabbis in history, said, I don't understand. The Beis Amikdash is like the, that's like God's headquarters. 
how can that building ever be subject to destruction? It doesn't make any logical sense. It's a metaphysical entity. How can it be destroyed? And so what the what Reb, what Reb Chaim of Illusion explained was that as we started hating each other more and more, God went up a level, and then up another level, and then up another level toward heaven, leaving earth to the point where it wasn't a metaphysical entity anymore or a technologically advanced wall anymore. It was just something that was made out of stone or rock or whatever it was made out of. Just knock it down. Just knock it down. The good news is we're united right now in a way that we've never been united before. And on some level, I think that God is performing a very, very painful surgery on the Jewish people. A very painful surgery in order to get us to be one people united again. And the more we're one people, the more God's protection is going to become openly apparent and manifest. If you look at the beginning of Parsha's Buhu Kosai, it says very clearly, when 20 of you come together, you'll, ch- you'll chase away 100. When 100 of you come together, you'll chase away 10,000. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but let's just do the simple math. 20 of you come together, you chase away 100. That means you have five times the power. 100 of you come together, you chase away 10,000. All of a sudden, you have 100 times the power. So there is this exponential power that we exert. The more and more we come together, we're able to exude a counterforce which is off the charts. And if the entire Jewish people come together, then no power in the world can stand before us. Exile itself cannot continue to be manifest. It's not just human enemies. The spiritual forces separating us from the complete redemption fall away. Do you understand? Such is the power that we emanate when we come together. Purim is another example. So now, so now I want to get back to this idea of exiling God. Okay? Because I told you that God left the world in stages, and that's how they were able to knock down the base of Migdash. We see a similar disunity going on among the Jewish people today. And then another crucial wall fell down that was very unlikely that that would ever fall down. But now I want to examine our premise. Did God really leave? Was God really exiled from us? And the answer is no way. (laughs) There's no way. Because we cannot continue to exist unless God is present with us. There is no world unless God is here. There is no us unless God. So now I want to tell you something, one of the deepest, deepest things that I know. And please, like as as Rip Shlomo would say, listen carefully and carve this into your heart. Carve this teaching into your heart. This is from Reb Tzadik HaKoyin, one of the greatest Hasidic masters from about approximately 100 years ago. He says, do you know what poison the snake put into us? Spiritually speaking, he put into our thinking the following idea, that there's such a thing as a place where God isn't. He put into our minds this idea that there's such a thing as a place where God isn't. And he spelled it out a little bit further, made that idea a little bit more accessible, okay? If you have kosher food, and then you add, I don't know, pork to it or something like that, the kosher food is no longer kosher. It used to be kosher, now it's not kosher. 
That's just the ABCs, okay? If you have something that's tahor, which it means spiritually pure, and you make it tame, which means you make it impure, it's not tahor anymore. It's not pure anymore. It's impure. Okay, so there's a certain logic that two things can't coexist at the same time. It's binary. It's either one or the other. All right, now here's where it all falls apart. If I sin, if I do something wrong, therefore, I, I logically think I have sent God away. God used to be here, just like the meat used to be kosher, just like the thing used to be tahor or pure. If I sin, I then send God away. Except that's not true. God doesn't go anywhere. God stays with us. Because God fills the entire world, and there is no world without God. There's a beautiful example of this teaching. The way you spell the word chit, chit means a doing something wrong, right? A sin. Sin isn't really a Jewish word, but just for our purposes right now. Chit. It's very simple to spell the word chit. You spell it ches. Tet. That's how you spell chet. Except that's not how you spell chet. There's a silent letter that's added to that, which is the letter Aleph. And again, Aleph is the number one and stands for God in Torah thought. The way you spell chet is chet, tet, Aleph. You know why? Because when you do something wrong, God is right there with you and he doesn't leave and he stands by your side. So now let's get back to how we started this whole discussion. Adam and Chava eat from the tree, and then they hear this rustling, this, 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 this voice, this, they understand that, that God is coming, and they hide in their shame. And God says this word, this amazing word, Ayeka, where are you? Now I'm going to tell you something on a very deep level. Ayeka, by the way, is the same word as Eicha, which is stunning, because Eicha is the name of the book that we read on Tisha B'Av, right, which is the headquarters of all Jewish sadness. That's the name of the book that we read, Eicha. And it's the same word, punctuated differently, but the same word. And God says to us, Ayeka, where are you? You want to hear something wild? This word ayeka is gematria, is the numerical number 36. And let me tell you something about 36. Well, I'll just start with something simple. Do you know on the eight nights of Hanukkah, do you know how many candles you burn? 36 candles. <laughs> what is Hanukkah all about? the fact that even at the darkest time, there's still light. And I'll tell you something just slightly more involved. There was a great light that God created the world with. It wasn't the light of the sun. The light of the sun came later. In fact, the light of the sun is like a joke compared to this initial great light. God hid away this great light because he knew that evil people were going to enjoy it and it wasn't proper. So after God created this great light, he put it away for the righteous in the end of days. During the whole of Adam and Chava's stay in the Garden of Eden, even after they ate from the tree of knowledge, God shined this great exalted light. And our sages teach that he shined it for 36 hours. From the time that Adam and Chava were created till the end of Shabbos, God shined this great light. So when God says Ayeka, which is the number 36, God was hinting in a very deep way, I'm still with you. I haven't left. I haven't left. I'm still with you. But you know what happens? 
we project our own reality and our own shame on the people around us and on the events around us. The world is like a Rorschach test. Let me tell you what a Rorschach test is, just in case you don't know. It's those ink blots that aren't a picture of anything that a psychologist often shows people because Dr. Rorschach, my father told me this, who was a psychologist, he discovered something. He would walk with patients around the sanitarium and they would walk in the fields outside and he would point to the clouds and he would say, what do you see in that cloud? And he noticed that whatever the person was feeling inside, they would project that on the cloud formation. So for instance, if the person was in a good place, oh, that cloud is, that's a mother holding her baby. Or if the person's in a bad place, oh, that's a dragon holding a bloody sword. And all of a sudden he was like, wow, I'm really onto something. So he institutionalized this method with these ink blots instead of clouds, and the Rorschach test was born. Well, guess what? All of life is a Rorschach test because you look at the events of your life and how you feel about yourself, that's what you see going on around you. You know, I often think there are two types of people who miss a flight. The first person who misses a flight says, I'm such a loser, or turns to the person they're with and says, it's your fault, <laughs> right? And the second person who misses a flight was like, ah, God just saved my life. <laughs> how you feel about yourself, how you feel about God, is how you are going to see the events of your life. That's what it is. So now let's get back to the subject. When God says, where are you? They thought we've exiled God from this world because we're not worthy of being imperfect and God still loving us. But God never leaves our side. Even amidst our imperfection, God never leaves us, period. And every single moment is an opportunity for a new beginning and a new relationship with the Almighty and with each other. And the same is true for today. These things happened, and on some very deep level, yes, our shmir, our guardianship was removed, but don't come to the false conclusion that God ever left. God did not leave. God did not leave. But now we have to come together as one. And I'll just end this talk the way I began it. Everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. And what's ever going on in the world, even the wars of the world, according to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, are being manifest and reflected in your interpersonal dealings with family members, community members, friends. And we are no less on the battlefield. And again, I'm not making any equivalency to what the average person is going through and what the person on the front lines in Gaza or someone who's worried sick over a loved one in Israel. I'm not making any equivalency, but I am also not removing us from the responsibility that we are involved in this struggle as well. And that we are mandated to take positive action in terms of our relationships as well because God assigned us in his infinite wisdom to that role, and we have to take it seriously. I'll just end by repeating one of the earlier points. Not only can war be moral, and not only is it moral in this instance, but not going to war can be immoral. And don't be intimidated 
or cowed by the press, which literally needs to print things. You know, it's a whole nother subject, but I'll just, just bring it up very briefly. The world changed when CNN went to a 24-hour news cycle. It used to be that the evening news was from 7 to 8 or whatever it is, 6.30 to 7, I don't even know. But there was a news slot. And then all of a sudden, CNN just hit on this, you know, like from a programming standpoint, a genius idea, which was what if we reported news 24 hours? The entire world changed. Do you know why? Because the bar for what qualified as news all of a sudden collapsed and they had 23 hours of programming time that they had to fill with something. Do you ever wonder why do I care what dress that person wore or what suit that person wore or where that person vacationed? I couldn't care less. How is that news? You know how it's news? Because you've got 23 extra hours that need to be filled. That's how it's news. And so, okay, we've, we've reported on the atrocities enough. Now let's report on the suffering that's going on the other side. And now that footage is much more interesting. We show the slit baby's throat so many times. People don't want to see that anymore. They're bored of it. Now we've got to have new horrible stuff. There's got to be some kid who's under a collapsed building because Israel dropped a bomb. Let's get those pictures now. And then you watch and you go, oh, well, I'm not sure anymore. Don't be a victim. Don't be a victim. Maintain your clarity. Guard your clarity vigilantly because that's all you have, really, is your moral clarity. And let me tell you something else. From a Torah standpoint, you're actually not allowed to look into the face of a wicked person. Do you know that? Like, when, when they've got a picture of a murderer on the front page of the newspaper, you're actually not allowed to look at the person's face. How much more so are you not allowed to watch these clips coming out? I've heard from so many people, I can't unsee that. That phrase, I can't unsee that. Can I tell you, you shouldn't have looked to begin with. And maybe you didn't know about this, but now you know. But now you know. And this idea of intersectionality, that all of a sudden, the most immoral acts in the world speak for you, we've got to end that. We've got to end that. We've got to end that. And maybe there's someone listening out there who, who knows how to do that in a way that I don't. But please, if you do, take that bowl and run with it. Because that's doing more damage to American society and world society in terms of just submarining ethics in general than almost anything. And that's the heart of it. That's where it lives. That ideology has to be uprooted. And lastly, one of the greatest gematrias in the world, and I was so happy to find out that this is from the Ari himself, right? One of the greatest, holiest Jewish souls ever. The word Ahava, which means love, is the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent as the word echad, oneness. One love. When there's oneness between us, it creates love. And when you manifest love, you create oneness. It works both ways. And that's, that's our job right now, to create one love. And we do that by reaching out and remembering on just the most practical level the words of the Katska Rebbe, you're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you. So why are you so surprised when you meet someone who doesn't think like you? 
Just roll with it, okay? Right? Just remember the big picture. As my father, should rest in peace, used to say, that's why they have menus in restaurants, because people like different things. <laughs> very, very straightforward. It's okay. For there to be peace, we don't have to be clones. All right? We just need to stretch and make room for each other. Okay. God should bless us and protect us, be safe, be vigilant, be vigilant and let's all do the work we need to do. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.